Indeed. Well, the passage we are considering today is well known because of this unusual event that, that takes place, place in the cenacle, in the upper room of this house in Troas. Uh, this event that's recorded for us, the, the dozing off, uh, uh, the falling, the death, and the resurrection of this young man named Eutychus. However, I do not believe that this is the most significant or the most relevant uh, uh, part of this episode. I think more relevant than, than the events surrounding Eutychus, and we'll look at it, um, but more relevant than that is the context in which the raising of Eutychus took place. It is perhaps the first, I agree with, with many commentaries, this is the first time that we have recorded in Scripture of a service being held by the church on the Lord's Day, on the Sunday. It is the earliest sex we have in which it can be inferred with reasonable certainty that the, the day of worship had shifted from the Jewish Sabbath to the, the Christian Sabbath, to the Lord's Day, to the Sunday. It is the earliest, the commentator says, the earliest unequivocal evidence we have of Christians meeting for worship on that day, the first day of the week, as Luke tells us right in verse 7, the first day of the week. So just for a quick recap, for us to know where we are, if you haven't been coming in the last few weeks, we are at the end of the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. After a long ministry in Ephesus, he stayed there for, for close to three years, and now probably an extra year of visiting the churches in Macedonia, in Achaia, and that's Greece, uh, modern-day Greece for you. Perhaps even, as we looked uh, last week, perhaps even doing a small detour through the region of Illyricum in, uh, in what is now uh, the, the region of Croatia, Serbia. Paul is returning home. He embarks in Macedonia, Probably in the port, if you have maps in the back of your Bibles, perhaps it's helpful to look. Uh, probably from the port of Neapolis, near Philippi, and he's bound for Jerusalem. In this third missionary journey, he established churches. But not only that, other churches that are, had already been established in the, in the two previous journeys were encouraged, were were. were edified and were exhorted and strengthened by his ministry and the ministry of his friends, his assistants. Through the preaching of the gospel in the third missionary journey, we see that the darkness of paganism was exposed and dispelled and many people were rescued from the dominion of Satan in this region, in these regions. Paul were spent a lot of time in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, a little bit of that time in Greece, and now he's making his way back to Jerusalem, bringing an offering for the, the Judean believers there. It is interesting. It is an interesting thought that I, that, came, that I came across as I meditated this week, as I considered this passage. I wonder, why did Paul take so long uh, in his farewells? He had already in his heart, as he's uh, raising this money to go to Jerusalem, but seem, it seems like he's, he's not exactly in a hurry to, to get back to Jerusalem. He wants to, he's taking his time to say his farewells. I wonder, and I wondered uh, throughout the week, and I still wonder if Paul had in some sense uh, an inkling an understanding that this was perhaps the last time he would be with his brethren in, in, uh, in Asia, in Macedonia, and in Achaia. I wonder if Paul had at least an inkling that he would never see them again this side of glory. Not so much because he was going to die soon, although I'm, there is a sense that he, that he had uh, 
this impression on him as well. But because he also, as you, as you read in the, in the letter to the Romans, he had purposed in, the, in his, what was to, if, if he went along or if he went ahead, what was to be the fourth missionary journey, he was intending to go to Rome and then to make his way to the Iberian Peninsula, to where Portugal and Spain are. It might have been that he knew that he was planning to do something that would keep him for many more years and that probably he wouldn't see these brethren again. So he takes his time saying these farewells. Another thing that crossed my mind, and these are things that the Bible doesn't answer, but they help us to remind ourselves that we're not speaking of some kind of fictional superhero. Uh, and this, the book of Acts is not some kind of Homeric uh, novel that we're speaking of a very real man who lived 2,000 years ago. Another interesting thing that remains unanswered, but it helps us to, to perhaps think about the humanity of Paul, is why was he so keen on bringing this offering to Jerusalem, on bringing this uh, financial aid to the Judean Christians? Why was it? Was it because he was a Jew? And the Christians there were Jews, and he had this kind of kindred uh, affection for them, this kindred spirit, this national, ethnical connection that meant that he wanted to help them. I can understand some of it, but what, what struck me is, as I thought of who Paul was, this, in this case Saul of Tarsus, and who Paul is now, I wonder, did Paul feel some kind of moral debt, debt to the Christians in Jerusalem? Was he, was he in some way pressed in his conscience, in his burdened conscience, by the life he had formerly lived? It is undoubtedly that, uh, that some of the Christians in Jerusalem uh, at the time that Paul is, uh, that is recorded for us here, it is without a doubt that some of the Christians there in Jerusalem would have known of Saul of Tarsus. Perhaps there are some orphaned uh, Christians there, fatherless believers, perhaps some widowed saints that Paul had a hand in bringing about. And he felt it was his moral duty Notwithstanding the fact that he had been forgiven of all his sins, but he felt it was his moral duty to make amends for his mistake. These questions, of course, remain unanswered, but it is important for us to remind ourselves that Paul is not just a fictional character. He was a real man, plagued by and, and troubled by real difficulties. And he, he perhaps some of these things are or playing up in his in his life and in his in his thinking. So this is the end of the third missionary journey. He arrives at Troas on the shore of the Aegean Sea on the other side of Neapolis. This trip we would have taken about two days in good weather, but we read there in verse six, don't we, that it took it took them five days, perhaps because of, of bad weather, perhaps because of, uh, of, of bad sea conditions, it took them longer. But nonetheless, Paul gets there to Troas, and we find here recorded for us his ministry in Troas. So I wish to highlight three things before we draw some conclusions. First of all, the, the circumstances surrounding uh, the service in Troas, Secondly, the elements that we have recorded for us in the service in, in Troas. And thirdly, we'll look at the unforeseen event, the unusual event record, that occurred on that occasion, which is the falling asleep of Eutychus. And I hope when we get there, none of us has fallen asleep like Eutychus. But let's, let's go. Let's first look at the, the circumstances in the service. Our text begins saying that this happened on the first day of the week. It is the first day of the week. It was during the night. It was on the, on the room on the third floor 
of the residence where, where Paul was, uh, was holding this service with the gathered church there. It was uh, the third floor. It was perhaps the cenacle. Usually the third floor would be the, what is called the cenacle, the place, uh, the bigger room where, where people eat. It was almost certainly the residence of one of the believers living in that city. And we find that the service was a long one. It may have begun early evening. We, we read that it, it was the whole night. It, it was, his message, he continued speaking his message until midnight. Perhaps the service started at early evening. And it might find it unusual. But you need to remember that this is a, a Greek-Roman context. At this time, there was no day of rest set apart in the culture of the Greeks or of the Romans. There was no Jewish Sabbath. There was no, no Christian uh, Lord's Day. There was not a single day that was set apart. So the evening was the most suitable day for Christians to gather, or the most suitable time of day for Christians to gather. It was the, the time of day, especially for those who were not self-employed, that all their business had been done and that they had some spare time to come and gather together. And if you add to this the fact that we are living in, in the Acts uh, in this particular period of time, it is a, a time of oppression. It is a time, although not outright persecution perhaps, but it is a time where Christians are fearful for, for their lives and for their, for, their, for their existence. It is not unusual as well that they would meet in the evening under the cover of darkness, under the cover of the evening, so that the congregating of themselves would be much less noticeable. I don't think that services tended to be that long. I think the, the, the unusual aspect that Paul was there present meant that this service kind of extended itself. Paul just took a little bit too long to make some points of application in the service. I don't think they were this long. Possibly because it was the last day and, and, and Paul was departing the following day. Probably with not much expectation as we spoke of returning to Troas. He, he prolonged himself. What was the nature of the message? We are not told. But I... I don't think it would have been that different from the things that we have already considered, the words of encouragement in the book of Acts, and perhaps not that much different from, from the, the Paul's letters, uh, Paul's epistles. The nature of the message here was certainly the same in, in, in essence, especially when you think that it is around this time that Paul is actually actively writing many of the letters that we have today in our New Testaments. But the most relevant question is not so much here the, uh, the content of the message, although I would certainly want to see the sermon structure of a, a, a sermon that lasts <laughs> for four, six, maybe eight hours. It must have been a very long uh, structure. The most relevant question here is what concerns the day in which they are meeting. As I said, this is the first time that we have unequivocally recorded for us that Christians were meeting on the first day of the week, on the Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And Luke speaks of it here, not as some kind of novelty. There is a sense when you read this, as Luke, Luke writes it, this is cost, customary. Perhaps it's the first day that Luke uh, bothers to mention it, uh, but it is, it is introduced here with, with this um, almost, it was a as if it wasn't necessary to say it's customary. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, he's not saying, oh, by the way, the Christians started meeting on the first day of the week and we gathered together on that day. No, he just says, well, on the first day of the week, as it is usual, at this juncture in Acts 20, about the church meeting on the Lord's Day. And this is significant. This is significant because it is under, what we see is that Luke already understood the Lord's Day, the Sunday, 
as being the, the day of gathered worship. The Lord's Day, uh, and the, the Christians at that time already understood that this is the day that we gather together. Our Lord Jesus rose from the dead on this day. This day marks the, the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Of course we gather together on the Lord's Day. In fact, the, 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 the very term Lord's Day shows it's not some innovation of later Christians uh, uh, through the centuries. The Lord's Day is the way that... On the Lord's Day. So very early on, that's, this is what I want you to notice. Very early on, meeting on the Sunday instead of the Jewish Sabbath came to be observed by the Christians. The transfer from the, 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 the Saturday to the Sunday had already happened here in Acts 20. There is another document, just just as a, a curiosity, but to further uh, give foundations for this, for this idea, there is a document, perhaps the oldest Christian document outside of the Bible, outside of the New Testament, the oldest Christian document in existence. It's called the, the Teaching of the Twelve, the Didache as well, uh, in Greek. It, it is a document that contains some uh, instructions for believers it is thought of now, the latest um, scholars studying the, the age of, of the writing, they look at uh, how certain words are written. Uh, certain scholars looking at that, they believe it to be as early as the, the sixth decade, 60 of, our, of the year of our Lord. It is certainly within the first century. And it, when you think that Acts 20 is happening in about, Midway through the fiftieth decade, uh, the fifth decade, so the fifties of the first century, the Didache is just five to ten years uh, written, just five to ten years later. The Didache says this in uh, in the fourteenth article that on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks. First confessing your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. This is the earliest non-canonical, non-biblical uh, record, a Christian record. And on, in, the, in the 60s of the first century, it was already established. It is the first day. It's not some kind of later innovation brought in by Emperor Constantine or brought in by, by the Roman Catholics or, or brought in by whoever the latest theories or critics would say. No, it was there. It was natural. It is the beginning. It is the resurrection of our Lord. This is the day that we should meet. I don't think there was much argument. At least it doesn't come across in any of the letters. With all the controversies that we see happening in the first century in the church, and we read of it in the book of Acts, and we read of it in the epistles, Meeting on the Lord's Day? Absolutely no doubt about it. Meeting on the first day of the week? Absolutely no discussion about it. There was discussion about keeping the circumcision, keeping the laws and, and how these things. But even for Jewish Christians, I believe this was just completely normal, completely acceptable, the right thing to do. So what we have here is the confirmation that the observance of the Sabbath moved from the Saturday in the Jewish tradition to the Lord's Day, to the Sunday in the Christian, um, in the Christian way of worship. It is there. It is here. So secondly, we can and should also look at the service. What are the elements present here in the service? According to scripture, the elements of worship are practices that should have some kind of significance, some biblical principle. In expounding the, the scripture's teaching of, of what a worship service should have, the confession says that the elements of religious worship are reading of scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as well as the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
These things are, are performed in obedience to God. And these things are what should be present in a worship service. Luke does not record all of these elements, but he mentions two of them. He says that the Lord's Supper was present and that the preaching of God's word was present as well. But we can infer, can't we? Imagine a service this long. We can infer that certainly there was praying and certainly there was singing of God's praises. The basic fundamental aspects of, the public, of a public service were certainly present here. Paul himself recommends to the churches of Colossae and the, the church of Ephesians to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. However, we only find it recorded here in, this, in Luke's summarizing of events, these two things, which is fine. The words uh, spoken uh, here are, in the message were perhaps, again, the, the words of exhortation, encouragement, words of comfort to the church. That's, that was the whole goal of Paul at the end of his ministry here in Philippi, uh, in, in his third missionary journey as he arrives in Troas, to bring encouragement, exhortation, and, and comfort. So finally, before we draw some conclusions, let's speak about Eutychus. And I'm hoping that we have no candles here and no one is sitting by the windowsill. But let's, let's look at this unusual event. It is unusual not only because of its length. This unusual service that is unusual not just because of its length. It is unusual because of this unexpected event. Around midnight we read this young man called Eutychus was sitting in one of the, of, of the windows, in one of the window seals perhaps, and he was being overcome by deep sleep. And he, 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 he was overcome. He fell. He sunk into deep sleep. We read in verse 9. And he fell. And he died. Luke gives us some information why this must have, uh, could have happened. He says that it was midnight. It was a late hour. It was... It was at the end of a long day. It, it, it was perhaps because of Paul's prolonged preaching. Again, if we think that the service might have started somewhere at the beginning of the evening, and it's now midnight, and it's at least four hours of, of, of ministry. Luke also says that there were many lights, many candles in the place, many, uh, many uh, sources of of light. And you know what happens when you have a lot of lamps, a lot of candles in one place. It burns up the oxygen. And if you've been in a room with, with, with a little bit less oxygen, you, you start becoming drowsy and tired. The smoke is, pre is there. Perhaps that's why the, the young man is closer to the window. Perhaps catch some fresh air to see if he, he can manage to... to Remain, get himself, or remain awake. He's also young. The, the word here that is used for young man is to refer to someone who is perhaps of, a, uh, of teenage years, perhaps between 10, 15, 16 in today's uh, account. He's a young man. And his name also denotes or informs us that perhaps he was a slave of a Gentile um, of a gentile master. Eutychus was a slave name in, his, in these days. So perhaps he had spent his whole day working. And he still dragged himself to the service to be with his brethren, the Christians. And he's tired. I don't know about you, but I, I've had this situation happen before. When I was, came to London uh, uh, and I was work, working double shifts in the restaurant until Saturday evening and by the time we finished clearing up and cleaning up and organizing things for the next day and I had an hour tube uh, uh, trip uh, back to back home it was one o'clock in the morning and this is in, a, in a, the next day having a Sunday service and still dragging her waking up early going to church 
you're just overcome with tiredness. You're overcome and you, you fight it. You're trying to pay attention. You sometimes, I don't know about you, but I used to pinch myself just to try and see if some pain would, would liven me up. She's just struggling. It kind of makes you feel for this, for this, for this young man. We read that he fell from the third story. He died. Well, some commentators say he didn't die. Some commentators say they, they just thought he was dead. But I, I think that there is absolutely no way when you read through this that you don't get that sense that he actually died. It wasn't just that he, people thought him dead. He was taken up dead, Luke says. And Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him and said, Do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. It says, it's Paul's prayer, Paul's actions that bring him back to life. Kind of similar to Elisha and Elijah. Kind of similar to Peter uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 9. John Calvin agrees with this. He says that the young man's life was restored by the grace of God. But in reality, it wasn't really Paul that, that raised up Eutychus from the dead, was it? It was the Lord Jesus acting uh, or using Paul as an instrument. He was the resurrected Jesus, the Lord of life. He was the one that had raised the, the, uh, the widow of Nain's son. He was the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. And through this miracle, Paul now demonstrated the reality of Jesus' presence in their midst. Oh, it was certainly, I, I love the, the, the slightly uh, double negative. They were not a little comforted, meaning that they were very comforted. That, only, that Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life, was their presence, present with them. And he raised Eutychus from the dead and he can raise others from the dead and grant them spiritual life to all of those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. So the narrative ends with this reference that Paul left. They were not a little comforted, meaning that they were very comforted for all that happened on that, on that night in early morning. And through this long worship service in which they participated, Paul's preaching, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and more specifically the, the resurrection of Eutychus, brought encouragement and comfort to their lives. The promises of God's word confirmed by the miraculous sign of God's life-giving power brought great encouragement to the believers of Troas. So what, what can we learn in practice about this passage? What are the lessons here for us? What are the uses of a passage like this? Besides the fact that uh, you, you can warn your pastor not to prolong his sermon too much. Otherwise people will start falling over and dying. There is one book, just, just on the side, there is one book on preaching um, that, is, that has the most... Uh, funny title uh, it's called Saving Eutychus it's a book written by a, a preacher a pastor uh, encouraging ministers to, to be uh, relevant to, be, to, to not be boring I don't think he's saying that he's not saying that Paul was boring but he's saying let's try and save Eutychus but what can we learn from this passage besides that Number one, I think we can learn something from the Lord's uh, about the Lord's Day. Two, about the worship of God's people. Number three, about death and resurrection. And number four, about the, the ministry of encouragement of the Apostle Paul. So, the Lord's Day. And I'll be brief here. I do believe that at some point we have to, to, to think and to speak more uh, at length about the Lord's Day. But for the sake of time, I'll be brief in trying to mention a uh, some of the teaching or some of the application here about the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, number one, is not some kind of man-made tradition. It is not, number two, 
something that was instituted for God's people in the Old Testament. When was the Lord's uh, or the 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 principle of a, of the Sabbath instituted? At creation, that's when it started. the The principle of of a, a day set apart and regarded as holy was their presence before the present before the people of Israel had been established before they had received uh, the law of Moses the, the the principle of a day set apart for the worship of God was established at creation before man fell before Adam and Eve fell into sin and that should tell us something that this is not just concerning Israel it is not just something that is to be observed by the people of Israel of the old covenant. It is a prescription that is found in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are as, just as binding and relevant and, and important to us as they were for the people of God in Israel and as they were binding even before the Ten Commandments were given. It is God's moral character. And it is interesting, isn't it, that the Sabbath, fourth commandment, is there. It's not in the, the, the hundreds of other laws instituted by God, the, the, the so-called ceremonial laws. It is there in the Ten Commandments. And it is binding to us. It is binding to every human being. Its prescription is for us. So we of the Reformed faith, we who are Christians of the Reformed uh, tradition, we hold that the observance of the Lord's Day, the observance of the Sabbath, is not be, has not been revoked. He has shifted. We, we, we glean that from Scripture. We learn that from Scripture, that it shifts from the Saturday to the Sunday. But those principles still apply. It is a day that is still in force with a view of edifying the church and of glorifying God. Now, let me say this. It is not to be observed in a legalistic, legalistic manner. It is not to be observed uh, as it was among the Jews, as a, a, a way of earning or, or garnering favor from God. As the Lord himself said, as our Lord Jesus himself said, the Sabbath was for man and not man for the Sabbath. It is a day that is set apart for our physical, our emotional, our, our moral, spiritual welfare. It is a day for man to glory and to worship God. It is a day of celebration. It is a day of joy. It is a day of edification, a word of worship. It is a day of feasting for the soul. And I fear that sometimes we in reformed circles, we make it a day of burden and of gloom and of, of all rules and precepts that we have to follow. You might ask me, oh, pastor, what, what, what can we do on a Sunday? If we're not under the Old Testament laws of the Sabbath, how do I keep the Lord's Day? What are the laws? What are the rules? What are the regulations for keeping the, this day then? Well, the rule, the regulation, and the positive affirmation is that you have to keep this day holy. You have to sanctify this day. You have to regard it as holy. Because it is the Lord's day. It is, but it is a day of love and not of legalism. And now I know you ask, oh, okay, let's talk about specifics. Can I watch television on a Sunday? Can I perhaps go to my garden and play some football with my kids? Can I take out the, a board game and play some board games? Can I, uh, can I go uh, and have takeaway at the restaurant? Uh, can I go, if I need milk, can I go to the store and buy milk? Can I do this? Can I do that? I'm, I'm going to say to you, you're asking the wrong person. You're asking the wrong person. You know why? Because it's not my day. It's not your brother or sister's day. It's the Lord's day. The question you need to ask is not of your pastor, of your elders. You can ask for advice. 
And I think it is incumbent on us to advise. But it's the Lord's day. You need to ask the Lord. Lord, how is it that I can honor you this day? How is it that I can regard this day as holy? How can I make, uh, take this day to bring honor to your name? It is your day. And I can hear perhaps some of you who are, who, who are on the other side of the fence. So I've said something to those who are perhaps a little bit more legalistically minded with regards to the Lord's Day. Let me say something to those of you who are perhaps more uh, antinomian minded with regards to the Lord's Day. You're going to say, oh, I, I think of every day of the week as holy. That's what some, some of our uh, brethren in churches that are do not hold to the, to the Lord's Day as being a special day that should be regarded as holy, say. Something that I heard very often in seminary. Well, in the New Covenant, you should regard every day of the week as holy. That's it. Well, true, I would, I'd say, every day of the week is holy, or should be regarded as holy. But the Lord's Day is specially holy. The Lord's Day has a specialty or a, a, a peculiarity about it that sh the Sunday that we should regard it as holy. And we know this from other similar patterns in Scripture. Our Lord Jesus said, pray without ceasing. But then there is a special moment of prayer that the Lord Jesus says, but there is a special prayer that when you go, go into your prayer closet, go into private and pray like this. There's, there's the general, uh, pray without ceasing, but there's a special. This is a, a special. The Lord says that all that we have and all that we own is his. But then we are commanded to showcase that in a special way, in an outward manner, by our offerings and our tidings. The Lord says, for instance, that, um, that we are... That everywhere we are is sacred. That there is no such thing as a sacred space. These walls don't make this building sacred. That everywhere where we meet with God is, is a sacred place. But th then there is the specialty or the speciality of do not forsaking gathering of the saints. There is a sense that yes, every place is sacred. But there is a sacredness in, this, in the gathering of the saints. So yeah, I agree with you. Make every day holy. Live all your days, that all the days of your life, thinking of how you can honor God and how you can bring glory to God and manifest the glory of God in your life every day of the week, from Monday to Monday. But Sunday is special. The Lord's Day is special for reasons that I've already stated. So how can you regard as holy? Let me give you three quick um, general ways of regarding the day of the Lord as holy. Number one is anticipation. Having said that, yes, I fell asleep a couple of times, like Eutychus in the, uh, in the service. I nodded off. Having said that, and making the, the appropriate uh, dispensation for some of our circumstances, perhaps health-wise, perhaps uh, work-wise, uh, making it hard to, to remain awake. No doubt that those kind of things exist. I would probably argue that most of the people who are nodding off and falling asleep in church services, and only the God, and, and only the, the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth can judge this, it's between you and him. But I would argue that a lot of the times that people are nodding off, being quickly, easily distracted in services, it's not so much because they worked a full day uh, and they're very tired. It's because they were very lazy or very sinful in the management of their time prior to the Lord's Day. There is a sense, and the Puritans were great at this. The, in many ways, the, the Saturday was the, pre the preparation for the Lord's Day. And they, they actively were already preparing themselves to, uh, in the evening of the, of the Saturday so that they would be in the, on the Lord's Day there at the beginning. 
and even before they went to the church service, so that they would be able to wake up early in the morning at sunrise to, to begin the holy day, the Lord's day, with worship and with prayer. How many of us do that? Let me encourage you. Think about these things. If you truly want to be obedient to God, think about how you can prepare your heart on the Saturday so that you can give to God on the Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Take time. Uh, take time in anticipation to prepare. Perhaps even prepare uh, the, the dinners and the lunches and, and try and have everything so prepared on the Saturday that the Sunday is an easy day. It's a day of, of re relaxation and happiness and, and, and of, of rest and of worship. Another way we, we are called to honor the Lord's Day, number two of these three points of general points of application, is to take time and rest. It is a day of rest. It is not a day of laboring. And I know we serve the Lord on the, on the Lord's Day. We have the ministry of the Sunday school. But as much as it is possible, rest on this day. You know, part of the, uh, of the, the commandment to, uh, of keeping the Lord's Day as holy and taking it as a day of rest is that, yes, the other six days of, of the week are days of work. Take this day to rest Take this day to rest. Six days of the week you shall labor. On the seventh you shall rest. And thirdly, stop thinking of the Lord's Day as a burden. Thirdly, take time to be joyful. Make the Lord's Day a happy day. It should be the happiest day of your week. It should be the, the most joyful day of your week. You know why they met on the Sunday, don't you? It's because it's the day that more clearly reminds them of what the Lord had done in, in his resurrection. It was the day of rejoicing, a day of, of victory. It was an Easter day every single day of uh, every single week of the year. It was Easter celebration. Or the Resurrection Sunday, as we call it here in the UK. It, it, is, it is that time of great celebration. He is alive. He is risen. He is living ever, interceding on our behalf in the presence of God. And we should rejoice. As the psalmist says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it. It is a day of gladness. Not of uh, gloom. It is a day of love and joy, not of legalism and somberness. As I said, we'll, we'll, I think we'll have other opportunities to talk a little bit more about this. Because I feel like on both sides, there is quite a few mistakes. And I'm not saying that I've attained to, to, to perfection in the middle of knowing exactly how to work out everything to do with the Christian Sabbath. But I've, I fear that it has become, because, because we see some being so lax and so unrighteous with their, with their observance of the Lord's Day, we, we just shoot the pendulum the other way. And we become almost Pharisees with all the rules. And all. I, I, I went to the Netherlands last year, you know this, and, and uh, in that wonderful place uh, in, in Urk where our, our brethren are from our friends there in the Netherlands are from uh, I noticed how nasty can be the observance of the Lord's Day in fact it's oppressive the rule of our brother from the Netherlands he was saying to me you have to be careful if you switch on the TV just switch it on in a room that no, no one in the no one can see from the outside because if someone sees, they're going to come and knock and ask, why are you, are you watching TV on a Sunday? It's that nastiness that I don't think it is biblical. I don't think it is Christian. It is pharisaical. And sometimes we overshoot the pendulum there. With regards to Christian worship, brethren, I think it is quite clear. 
the elements that should be present. I'm not going to make an argument that our worship services should be longer. I don't think the Bible is, the, the book of Acts prescribes the length of services. It's just describing what was happening then. But there is something about the willingness of the Christians to be there without complaints, just wanting to receive the ministry. And I'm sure Paul, Paul's ministry of the word was brilliant. I'm sure he had them hung on every word that came out of his mouth. And I'm sure it, it takes a very, a very special uh, gift from God to be able to speak for four hours without becoming boring and, and repetitive. There is something in us, isn't there? When we just want the 20 minute short version. Give me just the devotional the devotional. Uh, version of that sermon don't, don't just don't get don't put all that that thing all those things in all those that, that that stuff in should be a rebuke on us there are brethren in other generations were able to to and not even able willing to sit through ministry of the word that was prolonged why because they knew these are the words of eternal life where else can we go where else will we go? And finally, just let me just say a few words about Eutychus, his, his resurrection and about the words of comfort spoken by Paul. Well, I hope by now in the book of Acts I don't need to remind you that these things are not meant to be seen as normative normal in the Christian life but are meant to be seen as unusual special supernatural workings of God in that time I hope I don't need to convince you that the next time someone in, our, in your family in our church dies that we don't need to go around embracing him and praying for their resurrection it was a special moment. It was an unusual moment in the history of the church. And the gifts of the apostles were there for that particular time. That we are called more to be like Job. The Lord has, or to say like Job. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. Or to pray like our Lord Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. I hope I don't have to remind you of this. But let me just say about Eutychus. Many commentators are, accuse him of being careless, of being uh, unrighteous in, in the fact that he fell asleep. I don't think he was. I think he, in many ways, I'm not going to say an example because otherwise you're going to start nodding off. But in many ways, he, he, he commends to us an attitude, a willingness a desire to be with the people of God. We're not told that he was uh, uh, preparing himself to fall asleep. In fact, if, if he was allowing himself to nod off, he was probably very, very dumb because he was nodding off in the, in the windowsill. What the sense we get is that he's trying, he's, he's, he's desiring, and, and, and yet he fails But we, at times, don't have the same attitude. And I've said this already, but let's beware of our Saturdays. Let's beware of our, of our preparations and of, of our energy for the Lord's Day. The opportunity which Eutychus had in Troas might have been his last opportunity on account of his sleeping but the Lord was gracious to him this might be your last opportunity to hear the word of God the main thing here is that even this element 
Paul has encouraged the church. We looked at this two weeks ago when we, we, when we were looking at the beginning. The point of Paul doing this is out of love for the church to encourage, to comfort, to strengthen the disciples. And the, what we see here is that it's his presence, it's his words, and it's the, his acts. And I'm speaking of God here. It's the presence of God, it's the word of God, and it's the acts of God that bring comfort that bring encouragement, that bring um, nourishment to the, to the people of God. Here at the end, we're reminded again that the comfort came. It is principally the ministry of the Word of God, a ministry that Paul resumed. And once the Eutychus was raised from the dead, what did Paul do? Let's carry on preaching. Let's carry on where we left off. But it's the good news of the gospel that speak comfort to us. Paul was never to see these brothers and sisters of Troas again. At least most of them. He was never to see them again. And he may well have had an inkling of this. He may well have, might have planned... Uh, differently uh, and knew that he wasn't going to be able to come to Asia again in the near future. The length of Paul's address that night had all the hallmarks of a farewell. But it wasn't the message about Paul they were, were to remember they were to remember the message about Jesus Christ and his powerful work on that night. It is extraordinary. Yeah. Eutychus dying there, being raised from the dead. But the Lord continues doing that today. Not in body, at least for now. We will raise up our bodies on the last day. But the Lord continues to raise up spiritually dead people by his spirit. And he does so daily, even today, throughout this world, by his Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, quickening dead souls through, the, through saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, we will also still face physical death, but on the final day, we will be risen from the dead and we will not experience any more death.